So if you've, if you've been with us for the last few weeks, we're in a series, and, and it's on prayer. The title of the series is, is, is Learning to Pray, and it's based upon a book, uh, Praying Like Paul, written by D.A. Carson. Uh, so we're giving away lots of books today. Uh, so this one is right up here also, and feel free uh, after the service to just grab that book, take it home, read it, pass it on to someone. It's a great book. The point of that book, and really the point of this series is, is what if we learn to pray by looking at the prayers of Scripture? What if Scripture informed and shaped the way that we pray? One thing I've said every week, and I will say again this week, is that Paul prays for deep realities, not pleasant results. His prayers are not about having a good day and a good time, but his prayers are about Deep realities are about God being glorified, justice coming, Christ-like transformation, perseverance in the faith, the advancement of the gospel. That's what we see that dominates the prayers of Paul and really the prayers of all scriptures. But when we come into God's word, we see biblical prayer is not about making life more comfortable, but it's about running the Christian race well all, <clears throat> all the way to the very end. And today's prayer is no different. We're going to be in Ephesians 3. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Now this is an amazing prayer that we're actually going to break up into two parts. Today we're going to cover the first part, and next week we'll cover the second half of this prayer. And what we're going to see today is that Paul, Paul's going to have a lot to say about power. And in fact, what I, what I learned just studying through Ephesians this week is Ephesians itself has a lot to say about power, specifically God's power. If you were here with us last week, we saw in chapter one, Paul prayed that we would know the immeasurable power of God. This week, he's going to pray that we would use or experience the immeasurable power of God. And then in chapter six, the way the book ends, if you remember the armor of God, we're to stand firm in the power of God. So the whole book is framed with the power of God in the very middle of it. It's also a prayer about knowing and using and experiencing God's power. And so I'm just going to give the main point and we're going to jump right in today. So here's the main point that I really believe this text is about and what we're to understand as we begin looking at this prayer. Paul wants us to boldly pray that we become more like Christ through the limitless power of the Spirit. So that's what I hope that we understand today, that we can pray that God would make us more like his son Jesus through the limitless power of the Spirit at work within us. And so we're going to go ahead and look at the prayer. I want to encourage you, join me and stand, and we will read, we'll read actually the whole prayer starting in verse 14 and going all the way to verse 21. Here we go. For this reason... I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, 
according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we, we come to you right now. And we recognize that, Father, you have all power. With the word of your power, Lord, you spoke creation into existence. Through the demonstration of your power, your son came, born of a virgin, into this world, and then died on a cross three days later, rising from the dead, overcoming sin, overcoming death, overcoming Satan. By your power, you have saved us, that we would have spiritual life, bringing us from spiritual death to spiritual life, that we would live like you. And Lord, we look forward to the day where you will come in the future, where your power will be completely revealed as you bring about a new heavens and a new creation, where all the saints, all those who have believed in you, will live and rejoice in your presence for all of eternity. And so, Father, as we look at this prayer today, I pray that your spirit would give us wisdom to understand, that we would know how it is that you work within our hearts, that you would renovate our hearts, that you would make them new, all by the power of your spirit. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Um, so what we're going to do today is, is your outline is kind of has five questions, and that's going to be how we make our way through the text, just through the five questions that are in your worship guide. And the first question is, is what is the context of Paul's prayer? And, and this is really whenever you're in Scripture, you need to say, what's the context? What's happening? Because if you don't know the context, then very likely we can come up with wrong conclusions about God, about the gospel, and what it means to live the Christian life. So we always want to know, what is it that has taken, what has taken place before this passage? What leads, uh, how has God led us to the passage that we're studying? And so leading up to this prayer, Paul has given two massive truths about the church. And these truths are going to help us understand why it is that we come boldly to God in prayer. So remember, the, the prayer is that we would be transformed more like Christ. And we can boldly pray that. And because of these two truths, we'll see why we have so much confidence that we can pray, God, make me more like your son Jesus by the power of your spirit. And so truth number one is the church is the household of God. And if you just look back at chapter 2, or I think it's actually on the screen, chapter 2, verse 19, it says this. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In the Old Testament, we see that God dwells with his people, but he, he dwells in a tabernacle, or he dwells in the temple. His presence is made known in a physical location within a building. But when we come into the New Testament, we see that no longer does God dwell in a building, but he dwells 
in his people, what's called the church, what's called here in Ephesians, the very living temple of God. And so um, we see, well, you can see why it's so important we gather. There's something special when, when Christians gather together. God makes himself known in a particular way through the gathering of the church. In all, in all of creation, and all the things that he could have chosen, said, that's where I'll make my presence known. He says, no, in my people, those who I've saved by my grace, I will particularly make my presence known in all the earth. So that's, that's truth number one. Truth number two is the church is the means of proclaiming God's glory in all of creation. Now we see this in chapter three. In chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, for this reason, and it's as if he's about to break into his prayer at that moment. But then he explains his apostleship and why he's in prison and why we should not lose heart because of that. And he also explains something true about the church. And that's what we see in chapter 3, verse 8. And this is what he says. He says, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So don't, there's like a, a Mount Everest-sized truth in verse 10. God says he's chosen to display his glorious wisdom in all creation, heaven or earth and heaven, which means not only the seen, but also the unseen realities of the world. And the way he does that is through the church. So God saves us, that he would join us together to his people, that he would live within us for the purpose of his glory being proclaimed in all of creation, seen and unseen, visible and invisible, earth and heaven. I just want you to think, God loves the church. God loves the church. Our prayers do not fall upon deaf ears because he has chosen for the church to be his megaphone in this world, proclaiming his glory, so that not only would people see and hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, but the very angels themselves would be in awe of God's glory as it goes forth. And so on the very basis of just these two truths alone, we can know God is determined that we would become more like him as he dwells within us for the purpose of his name being proclaimed and enjoyed in all creation. And so that now leads us to Paul's prayer. So Paul's given these two truths now he leads us into this prayer, so that brings us to our question, what does Paul pray to? And first, I just want you to notice, Paul directs his, his prayer to who? He directs it to the Father. When we pray, we always direct our prayers to the Father. Jesus said, remember, in the Lord's Prayer, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, how does it start? Our Father, who art in heaven. So Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now the context, um, in the context, it doesn't appear that Paul is using 
the word father in the sense of referring to him as the father of all believers. But I think he's using the word father more to speak of him as the creator and originator of all creation and everything that exists. Because it's similar to what he does in 1 Corinthians 8, 6. He says this, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and from whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And there he's using Father as this way of saying, the Father is one who created all things. And it seems to be that's the way he's speaking of the Father here. And he's using the Father and speaking and using that name as mentioning his authority over all creation. And we know that because he says, I'm speaking to the Father from whom every family on heaven and earth receives its name. He's one who names every family in heaven and on earth. And if you remember back in Genesis 2, when Adam is, um, Adam is created, he's made in the image of God, and we're told that he is given dominion over all creation. And then in chapter 2, God parades all the animals in front of him. And there's a couple purposes that are taking place here. But one of it is he names all the animals. And by naming the animals, he's exercising his authority over all the rest of creation. And now we have God, the Father, who, from whom every family on heaven and on earth is named. So while man has authority over creation. Now God is addressing the one who has authority and power over not only the animals in creation, but over all creation, over every man, over every angel, over all beings that are there. Now, I want you to note something. Like Paul's, Paul's not rambling. His request is going to be for power, and therefore Paul and his address to God recognizes his power. Do you see that connection? The request informs the way he addresses God. He knows what he's going to be asking of God, so that affects the way that he comes to God. I just want to encourage you, we need to be thoughtful in our prayers. How often do we just pray, we're at the dinner table, and we just ramble out our rote prayer that we say each in every day, or we begin every prayer the same, no matter what we are asking of the Father. But what we learn here in Scripture and other parts of Scripture, that based upon what we're asking of God, ought to inform the way we even approach God, the way we're, we're recognizing Him, the truths that we understand about God. So I want you to think, how is it that you address God when you come to Him, when you're asking Him for things? And so now we come to the actual question, what it is that Paul is asking for. And so in verse, six, verse 17, Paul says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. So this is the prayer request. Paul's praying that Jesus Christ would live in your heart. I want you to think for a moment. Does that sound strange? He's talking to Christians. They already have Christ in their hearts. There, there's, a, there's a doctrine called the union of Christ in which what we understand is that when one believes in Jesus Christ, they're united to Christ. In fact, the Bible says we are in Christ and Christ is in us. There's this unbreakable bond that takes place when we are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. And yet Paul now says, I want Christ to live in you. We read in John 14, 
verse 19 and 20. I don't think this is up there, but John 14, verses 19 and 20 says this. This is Jesus speaking. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live. You also will live. And in that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And in verse 23, Jesus says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home in him. So the Bible clearly affirms that when we believe in Jesus Christ, there's a union that takes place. God dwells within us. We already see that also in Ephesians 2, right? The church is the living temple of God. God not only lives in you individually, but when we come together like this, God's presence is made known through the gathering of the church. But Paul is not talking about what happens when we first come to know Jesus Christ. He's talking about the ongoing work of Jesus in our lives. So actually, the word dwell in the Greek, it's a compound word. It's made up of two words. One is the word to live, and the other is the word down, which together means the word dwell. And what it means is make yourself at home. Make yourself at home. So Paul is praying that Jesus, who already lives in our hearts, would now make himself at home in our hearts. And so in the book, uh, Praying with Paul, D.A. Carson uses an illustration. It's a great illustration. And so I'll give it. And when you read it, you'll see exactly where it comes from. Um, but D.A. Carson says, imagine a couple that moves into their first house. They scraped all the money that they had and they bought a house, um, but it was a little bit of a fixture upper. They're thrilled with it, but it needs some work. Does anyone, did anyone first house, was it like that? Is anyone second house like that? Third house like that? Fourth house like that? Yeah. Um, just imagine it has orange and green shag carpet. Part of this is my own house. Like, I worked my own house into this illustration too. It has orange and green shag. It's flowery wallpaper throughout the house. The gardens are overrun with weeds. The grass is particularly non-existent. Fence panels are broken all over the place. But over time, the couple replaces the carpet. They take down the wallpaper. They paint the walls. They knock out walls. They add new walls. They put cabinets up. They re-landscape. They plant new grass. They fix the fence. And so 25 years later, the, church stand, or the, the couple stands in front of the house, and they go, we, we love our house. We, we're comfortable here. This house now looks like us. That's what Paul is praying Jesus would do in your hearts, in our hearts. He's praying for spiritual renovation. He's saying, I want Jesus to dwell in you. I want him to make, I want him to go through every single room in your heart, the family room, the living room, the closets, everywhere, and I want him to clean them and renovate them and change them, and I want it so that Christ makes himself at home in your heart. You probably have heard the line, Jesus loves you just the way you are. Have you, you've heard that, right? It's true, kind of. Like it just misses a lot of stuff. It's not a great line by itself because you would think, Jesus loves me just the way I am. Great, no need to change. But that's nowhere in scripture. In fact, in the beginning of Ephesians, Paul says in chapter one, verse, verse four, God chose you 
to be holy, which means he saved you that you would be fully and absolutely devoted to God. In Romans 8, 29, Paul, when he's rehearsing the gospel, he says that God has saved you so that you would be conformed into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. He loves you for the purpose of transforming you into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Never to leave us the way that we are. Remember those two big truths we talked about. You are the dwelling place of God. God has chosen you, that he would live within you, that he would change you, that he would renovate your heart, that you would be holy for the purpose that in every aspect of your life, we would be his megaphone, particularly together when we gather, of proclaiming his glory and his wisdom to not only the seen, but also the unseen parts of creation. So let me ask you, is Christ at home in your heart? Are you becoming more like Christ each year? Just like the house became more beautiful each year and after years and after years of work, so we too are are to become more like Christ each year as Christ dwells in us and makes us more and more like himself. This is to be a regular prayer that we, we pray. You should pray this for yourself. God, make me more like your son, Jesus Christ. Dwell within me. We should pray this for one another. We should pray this for our children. And this brings us to the next question, though. How do we experience ongoing spiritual renovation? So how does this take place? Paul tells us in verse 16. He says, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So we learn the spirit strengthens you with the power of God. So the way that Christ is going to dwell in your heart is through the power of the spirit working in you. Remember last week, chapter one, verse 19, Paul says, I want you to know the immeasurable greatness of God's power. And now he's saying, I want that, I want that power to be experienced in your life. Don't just know it, but it's supposed to be applied in you on a daily basis. Now, real quick, I just want you to notice, there's a Trinitarian shape to this prayer. And you'll see this all over in Paul's writings. So this is like just a side note, but you need to see it. Paul prays to the Father that Christ would dwell in their lives by the power of the Spirit. You see it? There's a Trinitarian shape. In fact, chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, there's a whole Trinitarian shape to the way God, or to the way Paul outlines the gospel. And in his prayer that we looked at last week, there's a whole Trinitarian shape to that prayer too, where you see each member of the Trinity at work within creation and salvation. And so, one thing to note, every grace you receives, you receive comes to you by the Father on the basis of the work of Jesus through the power of the Spirit. Everything you receive from God comes from the God on the basis of what Christ has done for us at the cross, applied to you through the Spirit. Everything comes to us that way. In fact, even even creation itself, God ordains creation, Jesus speaks creation, and the Spirit is the one who works creation into existence. Your salvation, God ordains your salvation. He chooses you. Jesus um, um, 
or he, forgetting the word, but he accomplishes your salvation at the cross. And what does the Spirit do? He applies it to you, which is when you believe in him. Everything comes to us from the Father on the basis of the work of Jesus through the Spirit. And so when Paul, you know, through this prayer saying, on the working of the Spirit that dwells within us, we're asking for the very power of God to change us. And this power, I don't know, I'm a big Marvel guy. Do we have Marvel people? I know there's Star Wars people. Star Wars is terrible. <laughs> DC is not good. Star Trek isn't great. Now I've made all enemies in here. Um, really, I'm only a Marvel person, at, at, only a Marvel person. Uh, and so, of course, Captain America, he gets that, that serum, right? Which, like, makes him super strong and just awesome. And we all want that serum, right? Because that would just be cool to be able to have that run fast, do all the things that he does. That's nothing what this power is like. So that's physical strength. And what Paul is talking about in this prayer is not that you become physically strong, but it's that we become spiritually strong. This is why Paul says that the Spirit works this power in your inner being. Paul's referring to your heart, to your mind. He's referring to your rational and your moral self. He'll use the same language, like in 2 Corinthians. He says, our outer self is wasting away, meaning like, like our bodies. We're getting weaker. We're more frail and frail. Like, like we get that, right? Like I get that now at age 43. I'm like, wow, this is a lot different than when I was 23. And some of you are beyond me. You're like, yeah, it keeps going. Right? We, our outer selves are, are wasting away. But in Christ, our inner selves are getting stronger every single day through the power of the Spirit. So this is what Paul is talking about. He's praying that Jesus would renovate, would transform your heart by the, strengthening, by the Spirit strengthening your inner being. And so what I want to do is I want to, I want to flesh this out what does this look like according to Scripture? Like, what is, what is Paul talking about? And so I want to go to Romans 7. It's up here, and I want to talk through this passage because you've probably heard this passage. And this is where Paul says, he says, I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is my flesh. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Anyone relate to Paul? Like, I have the desire to do good. I want to do what God wants me to do. I don't seem to have the ability or the power to carry it out. The good things I want to do, sometimes I feel like I just don't do, and then I'm doing these other things, and I don't want to do them. Like, that's the Christian life, right? That's the wrestling, the struggle that we're in. You say this, I want to be patient, I want to be kind, I want to be gentle with my kids, but then they speak. <laughs> and you're not. You say, I want to be patient, I want to be kind, I want to be gentle with my spouse, and then you're yelling because they did something. I mean, sometimes, like, sometimes the most godly thing we can do is just not talk. Do you know that? Like, sometimes it's just the most godly thing we can do is just not give our opinion. It's a little side note. Um, 
Maybe you just need that. Uh, or maybe you say, I want to spend more time in God's word, but man, I'm just distracted by my phone or by this or by that. Or, or maybe you say, I want to share the gospel with my coworker, but I'm so afraid of how they respond. I just, I just keep not doing that. Or I want to overcome lust, but I constantly find myself clicking on certain websites. How do I overcome this? So, so like Paul, we have, we have desires, but we wrestle with being able to carry them out, right? We are not strong enough in ourselves to do it. So this is Romans 7. Romans 7, Paul is wrestling with the Christian life. We are saved. We're no longer slaves to sin, but it feels like we're in a battle. So then comes Romans 8. In the beginning of Romans 8, he just says, this is what life looks like in the spirit now. And so I just want to pull out a few verses, verses 11 through 14 in Romans 8. And he says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So, so get this. Because of your faith in Jesus, the Spirit lives in you, and you have eternal life right now. Ephesians 2, we're born spiritually dead. Ephesians 4, but then by God's grace and his rich mercies, he does what? He makes us spiritually alive. So when all of a sudden Jesus becomes beautiful to you and you're like, yes, I love Jesus. He is the Savior. He's the one who died on the cross. I know that he's the way, the truth, and life. That's when you've received spiritual life. Your eyes are open and you see everything new. And verse 12 says, when that happens, you're no longer a debtor to the flesh, meaning you're free from the power of sin. Not the presence, but the power of sin, which means you're not a slave to sin. You don't owe sin anything. Before we're saved, all we do is sin. All we do, because we're not living for the glory of God. So even every good deed we do, because it's not for the glory of God out of a heart that loves God, is still sinful. Only by the very grace of God that we're saved, that now we have the Spirit living in us, we love Christ, and we are no longer slaves to sin. So verse 13 says, the Spirit lives in you to do what? What does he live in you to do? To kill sin. Wait, what's our text talking about? May the Spirit, through his power, strengthen your inner being. To do what? To kill sin. Or Paul says it in Colossians 3, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual desires, Anger, sexual desires, immorality, idolatry, and all this list that he gives right there. This putting to death is all possible because we have the Spirit now living in us that we would now overcome the things that are not pleasing to God, that we would then live a life pleasing to God. And all of this is possible because look at verse 14. You are a child of who? God. You've gone from from a child of wrath to now being adopted into his family, forgiven, saved, redeemed, sealed by the Spirit, that you would be his child asking, Father, I need strength. Now, if we who are not perfect fathers 
would love to give strength to our children and to give them good gifts. How much more our perfect heavenly father, that when we pray to him, I need strength, will give us strength. You see, God loves you and is determined that he would make you like his son Jesus. So when we battle with sin, what should our first response be? Prayer. And what a glorious response it is. Think about it. We have access to the Father on the basis of the work of the Spirit, on the work of Christ, that his Spirit who works in us would work power in us, that we would overcome sin and live pleasing to him. Prayer is never the last option. It is our first option. It is a glorious option that we have. So let me, let me, let me give an example of what it could look like. Um, let's say you let's say sin is your, or anger is a sin that you just struggle with. I think a lot of guys, guys, we can struggle with anger, right? Things don't go right. We get angry all the time, right? I mean, we just, anger is one of those things that, especially men, I think we all can, but especially men, seems like something we wrestle with. So you can come and you can say, Father, Father, you are slow to anger. You are gentle and good. And you have saved me by your grace that I would be united to your son, Jesus. And I want Christ to make himself more and more and more at home in me. I want to live like Jesus, but right now I'm struggling with anger and I can't overcome it in my own strength. So Father, forgive me for my anger and by the power of your spirit, strengthen me so that I would not respond in anger, kill the sinful desires of anger in me and give me strength to be patient, to be kind and to be gentle. See how that prayer works? We're coming to the Father on the basis of what Christ has done, asking the power, asking the Spirit to work powerfully within us to take off, to kill this sin and to put on the very nature of Christ that would be patient, that we'd be kind, that we would be gentle. Now I imagine that there are some here and you're thinking, well, that's great for most people. But my sin's not like others. And this is, we all, just saying, we all do this. This is how prideful we are. We all think that our sin is worse and harder than everyone else's sin. And so we go, well, okay, so other people can pray that prayer, but, but I've struggled with anger for 20 years. I'm not just overcoming it by a prayer. Or maybe, maybe you wrestle with lust and pornography and you feel, I'm just a prisoner to these sins. I want to overcome them. I want to be free. But it feels as though those claws are deep within my soul and they won't let me go. Do you ever feel like that with a certain sin? Whether it's anger, whether it's lust, whatever it is, it just feels like it has a hold on you. This brings us to our, to our, our next question. I think it's our last question. How much power is at the Spirit's disposal? I just want you to look at this. Go, go back to verse 17. So there's two ways I want to answer this. First one, looking at verse 17. So that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith. So first I just want to acknowledge, we're talking about a spiritual battle here. We're not talking about a physical battle. We're talking about a spiritual battle. This battle is the spirit, this act of spiritual renovation is an act of faith. So we need to know that we are saved. We need to know the truths of the gospel. This is why Paul, in chapters one and chapter two, has spent the entire time talking about what God has done in your life 
through Jesus Christ. He wants you to know you've been saved by grace. You've been chosen. You've been adopted. You've been redeemed. You've been forgiven. He says, I want you to know that the Spirit has sealed you for the day of redemption. He is the guarantee of your inheritance. You have an indestructible hope now in Jesus. He says, you have, you have limitless riches and you have immeasurable power at work in you right now, all because of the gospel. You've gone from death to life, so that as Ephesians 2, 7 says, God will lavish his grace upon you forever, unceasingly, even into the new creation. It is, amen. This is the beauty and the glory. So for two full chapters, he says, this is what God has done for you in the gospel. He wants us to know the truths of the gospel because your faith is fed and strengthened by the knowledge of God. Your faith is fed by the knowledge of God. So if you don't know much about God, it's hard for you to exercise much faith, which is why we're called to live in God's word. We're called to study his word. We're called to preach his word. We're called to encourage each other with his word so that we would know the truths of the gospel so that through faith, we would live as God has called us to. Now, this is also why we need other people. Because when you are in sin, when I am in sin, and we're not seeming to be able to overcome it, that means we are denying and or forgetting certain truths about the gospel. That's where I need you and you need me, that we remind ourselves of the truths of the gospel and we help each other to know them, to love them, and to apply them to our hearts. So we have to have community to do this. Because we so often will forget and deny the truths of the gospel. Because that's what sin does. Sin blinds us, right? That's why I don't even know how sinful I am half the time until someone says, hey, did you know you did this? Oh, man, I, I do now. But we can become so blind to the gospel or so blind to our sins that harden us to the gospel. So we, that's why we do table groups. That we do, that's why we do D groups. We, we have things within our church, within the life of the church, that we'd regularly be with each other, applying the truths of the gospel to our lives so that we will have a spiritual renovation taking place in our hearts. So that's number one. How much power is at the Spirit's disposal? First, we just need to realize we're talking spiritual battle here. It's all by faith. We need to know the gospel. Second, look at Ephesians 3.16. This is one of those truths of the gospel we're now going to look at says that according to the riches of his glory. So I ask you, what is the reason Paul can pray for the Spirit to strengthen your inner being? So whatever you're in right now, what is the reason, what is the basis for Paul being able to say, the Spirit's gonna strengthen you according to the riches of his glory? Glory refers to all that God is and all that he has done for us in Jesus Christ. So when Paul's praying that the Spirit would come to you and strengthen you, the Spirit doesn't come like a car on empty. Like, well, that's not going very far. Or like your phone after you've watched like 10 movies on it and YouTube like all day and it's like a 3% and it's about to die on you. That's not like what it is when the Spirit comes to you. The Spirit, out of the riches of God's infinite glory, comes to strengthen you. And because his riches are infinite, it never runs out. 
God's strength, his wisdom, his grace, his mercy, his kindness, his goodness is all at work in you because of Christ. God's power that spoke creation into existence. God's power that rose Jesus from the dead. God's power that gave you spiritual life. God's power that will, when he comes back, will make a whole new heavens, a new earth, is the very power that the Spirit works in you now that you would be more like Christ. His immeasurable riches. So when you're thinking, I don't know how much God can help, he is the infinite power of God is at his disposal to bring about transformation in your life. There's nothing that through the power of the Spirit cannot be overcome in your life. Now, I want you, I want you to think back about the illustration of, of the couple that they buy their house, right? They buy their house, and, you know, it's, it's, it's got problems with it. We've listed it. There's mold in the carpet, mold on the walls, holes, holes in the roof. Now, imagine, imagine the couple says, we're good. We'll just leave it like it is. Now, maybe we might say, well, maybe they need some resources. Maybe we need to come alongside. But you find out they got $50 million in the bank. Yeah, that, that sounds ridiculous, right? Like, what would we call those people? Fools. You're, you're living in trash, in, in a dump, and it's only getting dirtier and you have infinite riches at your disposal. $50 million, it's not infinite, but it can, it can bring, buy some paint, right? <laughs> we would call those people absolutely foolish if they didn't use the resources that they had for the renovation of their heart. Now, how much more do we at times as Christians, we're saved by God and we just say we're good. I mean, maybe I'll read the Bible. Maybe I'll gather with the church when it's convenient. I'm better than that guy and that guy and that guy, so I probably don't need to do a lot of spiritual renovation. I'm good. And they're just living in squalor. They're living in a heart that's not being transformed by the gospel. And I would say this. If someone persists in that for some period of time, resistant to transformation, then they would not be a believer, I would say. It would not, because remember, God saved you, Ephesians 1, 4, to be holy, for Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, that you'd be the dwelling place of God, for Ephesians 3, 10, that he would use you for the proclamation of his glory to the seen and unseen realities of creation. That's the purpose of our salvation, that we would enjoy God, know him, love him, and proclaim him. And he's given infinite riches for you and I to be transformed and to live a life, not necessarily of, of comfort, but of contentment in all that he does in us. So whatever you're going through, wherever you're at, whatever sin that just seems to be continually at work on your heart, there is victory in Christ. In fact, the Victory's already been won in Christ. Infinite riches are now at your disposal. Come to God and ask him, Father, on the basis of your son, Jesus Christ, renovate my heart by the, spirit, by the power of your spirit and confess your sins knowing that he's working in you. 
And if that feels hard, bring other people into that too. Because very likely, every single one of us throughout our Christian life are going to need other Christians praying for us to grow and spiritually renovate because there's things that we're denying. We're forgetting the infinite riches of God. So I want to encourage you. You are God's temple. You are the means that God uses to proclaim his gospel. He loves you so much. He has saved you that you would be transformed to the image of his spirit or image of his son. And he has placed his spirit in you that through limitless power, his son would dwell in you more and more and more so that over the years, you and I would look more like Christ. And so boldly pray, Father, make me more like your son, Jesus, through the limitless power of your spirit. Let us pray that for ourselves. Let us pray that for our families. Let us pray that for the church on a regular basis. We are not slaves to sin. We have been saved by Christ, that we become like Christ through the power of the spirit working in us. Let me pray. Our Father, Father, we come to you and we acknowledge that you sit on the throne above all thrones, that you have all rule, all power, all might, all authority. There is nothing outside of your dominion. There is no part of creation, whether visible or invisible, that is not ruled by you. And so, Father, we pray on the basis of the fact that your Son has saved us by grace, simply by your choosing, by your mercies, by your kindness, that we would be forgiven and adopted into your family. And that, God, you choose to use us for such incredible purposes like, like dwelling within us and proclaiming your glories. God, give us strength each and every day through the power of your Spirit that your Son would dwell more and more in us. Renovate our hearts. May we not have any rooms in our hearts that are off limits to you. But may we continually pray for spiritual renovation. May we confess sins, knowing that you are good, knowing that you forgive them, knowing that you give us the strength to overcome whatever sin we are facing. And Lord, I, I do specifically pray, Father, I know there are people praying, wrestling with anger, wrestling with bitterness, wrestling with lust, with pornography, and those sins can feel so defeating. And Lord, I just pray that every person here would know, whether it's those sins or whatever it is, that you have set us free on the basis of your son Jesus, and your spirit is in us now, that we would not be slaves to sin, but that we would overcome, that these sins would be put to death, and by your power we'd experience the life that you have saved us for. So God, I pray, may we encourage each other as a church. May we pray for one another that you would dwell on us more and more each and every day. In your name, Jesus, amen.